Now I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. And we're beginning a series this morning on the book of Acts. And that'll take us at least through the summer and probably even into the fall. And so we're going to look at the first 11 chapters of the book of Acts this morning. Next week we'll be looking at chapter 2 and the story of Pentecost. Uh, But today we look at the account of the ascension of our Lord. So let's read there the first 11 verses, page 1690 in your pew Bibles, 1690. In my former book, Theophilus, and we believe it was Luke who wrote uh, the book of Acts, so he's referring back to the uh, gospel of Luke. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight." They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Friends, in Jesus Christ, we call this day Ascension Sunday, Ascension Sunday, and that's because Ascension Day actually happened this past Thursday night. We're past it. Um, When I became the pastor here so many years ago, we actually had an Ascension Day service. So on Thursday night, we would gather together for worship, only there weren't so many of us who would gather together. And so that's why we moved the service to Sunday and called it Ascension Sunday. Now, that's not just a Brookfield thing. Um, When I was a pastor back in Grand Rapids, uh, the church that I was pastoring there, they also had an Ascension Day service or an Ascension Evening service. So 40 days after the resurrection of Christ that lands on on a Thursday night, and we had a couple of churches that actually worshipped together to try and give us a, little, a few more people to worship. After a few years, we added another church, so then we had three, and then we had four worshipping together. Finally, we just invited the whole classes, Grand Rapids North, 
to have a, an Ascension Day service together on a Thursday night, and we were still struggling to get 100, 150 people, so finally we just went to Sunday like, like we have here. Now, <clears throat> compare that with the coronation of King Charles that we saw just a couple of weeks ago. Some of you, I bet, got up at 3, 4 in the morning, right, to watch with people the world over to watch what? To watch really a puppet king crowned the ruler of Great Britain, right? But he isn't really a ruler, is he? He has no power. He has no real subjects. He has no real kingdom. It was all just pomp and circumstance. And yet, we watched. And the media fawned over it for days. And I guess it's just because we love that sort of thing. We love pomp and circumstance. But now think of, of Jesus. His coronation happened without any pomp and circumstance. His coronation happened on a hill somewhere outside of Jerusalem, and there were just a few of his followers gathered there to see it. There were no fancy robes. There were no soldiers in funny hats. There was no media to witness the event. For the majority of the world, in fact, it was a non-event. And for much of the church today, it's also sort of a non-event. And that has a lot to do with one thing, the cloud. The cloud. He was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. A cloud hid him from their sight. Friends, if that cloud were not there, our celebrations would be far, far greater of the ascension of Jesus, our Lord. See, what we need to see here is, is that there is an apocalyptic dimension to Jesus' ascension. The disciples witness Jesus' departure, but what they don't see is his arrival, his arrival into heaven. For instance, um, and this is what we, we call apocalyptic and the need for apocalyptic. Apocalyptic literature in the Bible, for instance, has its function of revealing what's really going on behind the scenes, right? And it seeks to particularly address us when things are not going so well, when things are going poorly. That's especially when we need to see what's really happening behind the scenes. For instance, in the Old Testament, people faced that kind of situation fairly often. They didn't know how to reconcile this idea that the God that they worshipped was the great king over all the earth, and yet so often they were being persecuted and, and, and fought against by other nations with tiny kings and tiny armies, worldly kings with worldly armies, and they couldn't understand why it was that they were suffering. Apocalyptic, apocalyptic opened their eyes to a deeper reality. Just think of, of one occasion. Think of 2 Kings chapter 6. There we read the story of the king of Aram. And uh, the king of Aram wants to capture Elisha. And Elisha's servant wakes up one morning and he sees, um, he sees the hills that surround Dothan, the city where they're living. They're, they're filled with the soldiers of the Syrian army. 
And so this servant is facing, you know, armor and swords and spears, and, and he runs to Elijah and he says, Master, what shall we do? And Elisha doesn't even bat an eye. In fact, he just seems to continue enjoying his morning coffee. And finally, he says, don't be afraid. There are more with us than there are with them. Now, what does that mean? Well, it sounded like nonsense, I'm sure, to Elisha's servant. But while he was wondering if Elisha had a little more, um, a little something extra in his coffee that morning, Elisha prayed. And he said this, he said, Lord, open his eyes that he may see. And when the Lord opened his eyes, what the servant saw were the mountains filled with the fiery horses and chariots of the Lord. The horses and chariots of Israel, they are called. And that's apocalyptic. Apocalyptic reveals to us a reality that we don't normally see. And, and that's what's happening in Acts chapter 1 here as well. Luke is telling us that this cloud hides some things from our vision, from our sight. It hides the reality of what's really happening. And I'm, I just want to talk about three things that it hides, three dimensions of the ascension. It, it hides up, it hides the dimension out, and it hides the dimension down. So let's just talk about those for a few moments. First of all, it hides this dimension of up. In Acts 1, we see Jesus' departure from the earth, as I said, but we don't see his arrival in heaven. Daniel, however, the prophet Daniel, Daniel does see that arrival. He does see what happens above the clouds. In Daniel's vision, he sees there the Ancient of Days sitting upon his throne in fiery glory in the heavens. He's attended by, by a multitude of worshipers. And the heavenly court is assembled there to execute judgment upon all of the nations. And there Daniel reports, he says this, Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. He, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion was an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Friends, Luke wants, us to, sh or wants to show us what happens above the clouds, what happens when Jesus arrives in heaven, and that is that he is crowned king over all the nations. He's given ultimate authority over all things. Even the angels testify to that when they say to the disciples, why do you stand here looking up into the sky? Jesus is going to return one day in the very same way that he went up. And what they are saying there is that Jesus will put an end to history like a period puts an end to a sentence. Jesus is in control of all things. The fact that he is away does not mean that he is unaware of what's going on in our lives. It doesn't mean that he doesn't care what's going on in our lives. It means that he's fully invested in what's happening here, and one day he will call it all to a conclusion, and he will be the judge. 
And he will judge all peoples. He will judge us based on our obedience and our allegiance to whom? To Jesus, the ascended king, the only rightful king over heaven and earth. Jesus has been given all authority, in other words. That's what it means, that he has gone up. Don't let the cloud hide that fact from your life. Jesus has been granted all authority. And friends, this is in direct answer to the disciples' question of Jesus in verse 6. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now notice, Jesus doesn't argue the fact that he is going to restore his kingdom to Israel. He argues the fact of timing. But the disciples have something just a little bit confused. When they think in terms of Israel, their questions always have to do with the prominence of Israel, with the nation of Israel, with Israel being vindicated, with Israel one day ruling over the nations. When, Lord, are they going to rule over the nations? When are you going to judge all of the other nations? The disciples cannot conceive, friends, at this time, of a church, a church which Jesus, in, into which Jesus will be inviting and embracing the peoples of all the nations. They can't even conceive of that at this point. All they can think of at this time is Israel, and Israel rising above all of the other nations. And so Luke has to remind them and remind all of us that Jesus has gone up. You see, if he had remained here on earth, what would happen? Jesus would have been one king among many. And the kingdom of Israel would have been one kingdom among many. But in reality, Jesus is the Lord of all the nations. He's been given dominion over all things. And so he is creating a new Israel. A new Israel that's going to incorporate people all over the world under his lordship. Friends, that's what it means that Jesus has gone up. The second thing that's hidden from us as Jesus ascends above the clouds is the dimension of going out. Going out. If Jesus has gone up, that means that his church must go out. Okay? Those two things are always together. Jesus tells his disciples in Acts 1 that they will be his witnesses, right? From Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to where? To the ends of the earth. And I want us to see, friends, what the impetus is for that mission, for that movement out to the ends of the earth. If you think back to the Old Testament, the first 11 chapters of the Bible, the first 11 chapters of Genesis tell the story of God and his world. God created the world. God deals with the nations. You have the flood. You have all of that. It's God's big picture of how he is dealing with the world. And then in Genesis chapter 12, everything sort of narrows down to the life of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all of their descendants. It tells the story of Israel. And that story goes how long? Really, it goes through the New Testament Gospels until you get to the book of Acts. 
And then in the book of Acts and through the rest of the Bible, what we get is a picture again of God and his world. God dealing with his world. What kind of bookends, or those are the bookends of the story of Scripture, and there's one particular thing that ends chapter 11 and begins the story of Acts. If you think about those first 11 chapters of Genesis, they tell one story. They tell the story of mankind, human beings, trying to replace God. It happened already in the garden with Adam and Eve, right? That was the temptation of the tempter. You will be like God, able to tell good from evil, right? And that's what they did. They tried to decide for themselves what was good and what was evil. You find that same story writ large in Genesis chapter 11, where it's not just Adam and Eve now trying to take God's place, but it's all of the peoples of Babel. They're so filled with pride in their own technological skills that they build this huge tower up to the heavens with what intent? It's with the intent of giving a name to themselves and not being spread out. In other words, they want to take God's seat in the heavens. It's God who rules from the heavens. But now they want to build a tower, knock God off of his throne and they want to rule themselves. Really, it's the same story as the Garden of Eden. They want to decide for themselves what's good and what's evil. And so they knock God off of his throne in the heavens. That's the end of chapter 11, and then everything turns to Abraham. But what you have to remember is that same story is sort of running in the background, like a computer program that you never properly close and it's using up all of your memory, and it's bogging down the whole system. That story runs in the background for all of mankind, all human beings continually trying to put themselves in God's place and rule their own lives. And we read about all of the sorrow and the devastation that comes as a result of it. Now, what happens in Acts chapter 1? God takes Jesus Christ, the crucified and now resurrected one, and he lifts him back up to the heavens. And he places him on his proper throne. And now we have the mission of God that resumes. Jesus has been lifted up, and now God resumes that mission to go out to all the world, to Jerusalem and Samaria and the ends of the earth. Friends, what is it that gives us the authority to go to our neighbors and proclaim to them the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they should recognize him as king of their lives? What gives the Vangs the authority to go overseas and proclaim that Jesus is king, king over not just Israel, king over not the United States, king over not just their little church in Sheboygan, but king over all the nations of the world. What gives them that authority? It's the fact that Jesus is seated on the throne of the heavens. God has taken his throne again. He is in charge, he is in control, and he is working out that authority by sending out his church to proclaim that truth to all of the nations. 
And so, friends, that's what it means to be sent out. But now we have to ask the question of legitimacy. What makes our witness, or what gives our witness, any legitimacy to go out? Friends, the ascension also speaks of one more dimension, and that's the downward dimension. What I mean by that is in the ascension, Jesus also speaks of the depths of his lordship. The depths of his lordship over every area of life. The ascension of Jesus means that Jesus encompasses all things. And nothing falls outside of his jurisdiction, right? Someday he promises that he will put everything right. Everything disordered will be ordered. Everything fragmented will be made whole. Everything, everything fragmented will be made right and one. And the church, friends, has a role in that. The church has a place in that. As we are filled with the Holy Spirit, we manifest that truth already here and now. Let me explain. Paul's letter to the Ephesians is very much Paul's application of the ascension of Jesus Christ. Paul is telling us if Jesus is on his throne, what does that mean for how we live our lives in the church? Last week, we looked at one of those texts. And if you remember, what we said is that Jesus, or, or Paul spoke not in that text just to children, right? He didn't just have a message for children when he said, obey your parents, but he also had a message for parents, Children, honor your parents. Parents, live lives worth honoring. If you expanded that text just a little bit, maybe you did that at home, you also read that, that Paul spoke to wives in that text and how they ought to live their lives. But he didn't just speak to wives. He also spoke to husbands. This is how you are to love your wives. Now, now think about that. That's not something that occurred in the Gentile literature. Okay, there were all sorts of commands for children. There were no commands for parents and how you ought to be parents. There were all sorts of commands for wives. There weren't any commands for husbands. And then Paul goes one further. He talks to the slaves and he says, this is how you should live your lives in relationship to your masters. And then he blows everyone away and he says, and masters... This is how you ought to live in relationship to your slaves. That was never said. That was never said, friends. But what we have to ask, this is a different society that Jesus is calling us to act out. If Jesus is really the king sitting on his throne, what does that mean about the way that we live our lives? Not just children, what does it mean for parents? Not just wives, but for husbands. Not just for slaves, what does it mean for masters as well? So Paul's point is this here, friends. He says, people, you need to be able to see behind the clouds and see that Jesus is on his throne and that Jesus calls us to live differently, 
to live a different kind of life, to manifest to this world the reign of Jesus Christ and what that reign looks like. If he is the true king, then act like it. In the world of Caesar, in a world where Caesar is king, like he was in Paul's day, a person's worth, for example, was, was determined by their proximity to Caesar. In other words, the closer you were to Caesar, the more you were worth. The farther you were away from Caesar, the less you were worth. And so all of the nameless and faceless ones had very little worth in that society. Children, women, slaves, completely overlooked. That's the kind of life where Caesar reigns. Now our society, if you think about it, has some sort of similarities to that, right? We have our own ways of determining personal worth. For instance, a doctor in our society has greater social value than a convenience store clerk or than an Uber driver. And likewise, an Uber driver has more social value than does a, a street person, a homeless person. Now, if we think the same way in the church, we've got it all backward. We've got it all wrong. We're living out a perverted story, a perverted narrative. It's not the drama of Jesus and his church. It's not the drama of the one who's gone behind the clouds. Because the Jesus who sits on the throne in heaven is the same Jesus who died for all of us, for everyone. And under his lordship, no one has greater value than anyone else. And this is the reality that the church is called to live out right here on the earth. The reality of Jesus as king. And in that reality where Jesus is king, wives and husbands, children and parents, slaves and masters, we all stand equal in worth and we must be treated that way and so friends the witness of the church goes out to the world but what we must constantly ask is what narrative are we telling the world what narrative are we bringing to the world are we telling the story of what life looks like under the true king jesus christ or are we simply sort of christianizing life under the rule of other gods and other kings, and using holy language, and that sort of thing? Do we approach work, our work, as if Jesus is king? Do we approach our dates as if Jesus is king? Do we approach retirement, recreation, how we spend our money, how often we consider the poor, all of that, as if Jesus is king? Friends, there must be a depth to our witness, an every square inch aspect to our witness in which we live out that narrative that Jesus is king. It's a narrative that will catch the world's attention. It's a narrative that blows away the cloud cover so that people can lay eyes on the true king of the world. Friends, may the Holy Spirit give us the power to witness to the true King, Jesus Christ. Let's pray.
Holy Spirit, you tell us a narrative right here at this table of an ascended Lord Jesus Christ, ascended because he died, he gave himself as a servant and as a slave for many, and he was raised up from death and lifted up to the highest heavens to reign. It's all one story, Lord. Keep us from perverting that story, from telling a different story. Lord, may we always, with our lives and with our lips, tell the true story of a Jesus who came among us as a servant and now reigns in the highest heaven. This is our prayer in his name. Amen.